Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, begins today in Glasgow, and it has been described as the most consequential summit ever, the last best chance to address runaway climate change. Some 20,000 heads of state, diplomats and activists will start to meet in Glasgow today for the Conference of the Parties to set new targets for cutting emissions from fossil fuels and to look at how we're doing on past targets. Throughout this week, we're going to be running bunker specials on the reality of climate change, the truth behind greenwashing and what your day might look like in a net zero future. But first, we need to know exactly what the conference is and what it can do and whether it will achieve its goals. Joining me is the New Scientist's chief reporter, Adam Vaughan, who reports chiefly on climate change and energy policy. And together, we're going to put together 10 things you need to know about COP26. Hello, Adam. How are you? Hi there. I'm all right. A little bit busy, but good. I bet you are. Are you stealing yourself for what could well be the biggest week in science reporting in the history of humanity? I, I, I am. I'm banking all my sleep at the moment because uh, right. these, these, these climate summits are famously sleepless affairs. You've written an incredibly detailed piece in The Current New Scientist, giving full, you know, exhaustive detail, everything from carbon trading to future mitigation. Well, firstly, I mean, let's just do the basics on this. Mm. Very few people are unaware of COP26, but it does take place in the kind of rarefied space of international diplomacy. Number one, what exactly is it? What makes it qualitatively different in kind of competency terms from your average run-of-the-mill G7? No, that's a very good question. So COP26 stands for Conference of the Parties. It's the 26th Conference of the Parties. So these are the parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is a environmental treaty that most of the world's countries agreed in the early 1990s to basically say we, we recognize this as a problem climate change and we've got to do something about it it's really nothing like those other sort of meetings like the g20 and so on where you know there's almost like all the diplomats have almost got like a pre-prepared statement that's going to be agreed at the end and really it's largely about the photo calls and stuff these meetings although there is negotiation done in advance and it is diplomacy done in advance they're quite anarchic chaotic affairs by their very nature because it's all the country you know all the 197 parties almost all the world's uh, main countries and they have to agree by consensus there's only so much negotiation that can be done in advance and that's been made even harder because of covid and everything being virtual and then the issue they're trying to debate is and, and solve is insanely complex which is basically saving the planet how that rubs up against national interest in, you know, a country that's reliant on coal, a country that's reliant on oil, a country that doesn't have as much money as another country to do it. But actual real negotiations will be taking place there, which brings me to point two. 
What can COP26 decide? Does it have binding powers? Does it have, in a more informal sense, the power to morally or politically enforce a consensus decision? There's no real sanctions as such or powers or bindingness to it beyond basically international reputation and Mm. um, the embarrassment factor, right? So that's one of the things these summits do is they are a moment in the spotlight where no one wants to be the villain, right? So various countries were sort of, the blame was pointed at them in 2009, China amongst them for it being, you know, considered a failure. No one wants to be that country, right? So that is what these moments do. They, they're a sort of bringing things to a head kind of moment. And, it, and it, it is purely about reputation and how countries, you know, if countries fail to meet their emissions targets that they promise under these summits, you know, they did in Paris, for example, they're not going to get a fine, right? That's not how it mm. works. It's all it's all done on reputation, really. Well, my third point was going to be, how are we doing so far on carbon reduction? And we're on course for, at the moment, for three degrees above pre-industrial levels of warming. The Paris Agreement was aiming for well below two at a target of 1.5. I think you wrote in your explainer in The New Scientist that emissions are set to rise by 16% by 2030 instead of falling by 45%, which is what they were supposed to do. And that puts us on a course for a world that's 2.7 degrees hotter by, by 2100. By any measure, that would be considered to be a pretty drastic failure. I suppose this sort of, and this is not being any sort of apologist for world leaders, I don't hold a candle to them in any way, but mm-hmm. I, I, I suppose the point to say is we have made progress. So I suppose it's worth recognising that things are better than they were in Paris, but clearly the problem is, is, is a question of, speed right it's it's not commensurate with the scale of the challenge to get to 1.5 degrees we need to cut global emissions by 45 percent that's not looking very good at the moment so that's why one of the crucial things at the summit you know even if say india which is hasn't put forward its plan it's not going to close the gap right it's not going to fix that the maths of that of that picture so one thing that's going to be really important for glasgow is the at the end of it that countries agree to come back much sooner and come back with new plans. Because at the moment, they're not due to come back until 2025 with, with better plans. And that's insane, right? That clearly will put us on course for a cooked planet. The question is whether there's a political will and ambition there to agree to say, okay, this is a problem. Clearly our plans don't add up. We'll come back next year and every year thereafter. Which brings me to my fourth point, or my fourth question, really. What, what are you personally predicting is going to happen at COP26? What should listeners be looking out for? Are there particular kind of key themes or key moments that they should keep their eye on? Well, it's a bit of a mixed picture at the moment. I mean, I think the there's been a lot of hay made of certain heads of state not going, Putin, Xi probably not going, and there's going to be like more than 120 heads of state stand up at the start of the summit for two days and then literally get up and do these sort of monologues where they go, oh, you know, we've been great on climate change and here's what we're doing. That moment is actually quite important, I think, because if in some of the countries might even literally wait to bring their plans forward to, to, that, to those speeches you know these the, their plans that they're formally known as these nationally determined contributions or ndcs in the jargon that could set a really positive tone for the rest of the summit so if china and india who are the key players who haven't put one forward yet if they've brought forth, brought forward their plans by then and they can you know talk about it at the opening there that will really set the tone a positive tone and ditto provided the money 100 billion a year has been delivered at the start, which we'll know hopefully very soon. Even though the maths is not great, I think politically there are reasons to be hopeful. These things are quite anarchic. 
the first week is like all the negotiators will be doing everything they can up to their sort of country's red lines. And then that means you quite often get this sort of like crunch point on the middle weekend. So fingers start getting pointed at certain countries should be in the blocker and saying, oh, you won't compromise on this, that or the other. And I think we'll probably see that pattern repeated here because what happens is negotiators sort of get as far as they can and then politicians, yeah, ministers come in for week two and usually they break the deadlock on the stuff. So, of course, not every country is equal or the same in terms of its carbon output as every other country. A key element is the contribution of the United States. Joe Biden's clean energy program it looks like it's been derailed by the Senator Joe Manchin effectively killing off the clean electricity part. This $150 billion clean electricity performance program, which would require all electric utilities to draw 80% of, of their power from non-carbon sources by 2030. This has been a real blow to the Biden presidency. But I suppose my fifth point is, has America kind of blown it already in terms of its performance at COP26? What does it mean if the US turns up empty-handed? I think yes and no. I think clearly he wanted to be there, right, with the sort of credibility of other countries knowing that he was going to deliver his new carbon target, which is a which he announced in April, which is of uh, emissions falling by up to 52% by 2030. So clearly it's not where they want to be. Is it disastrous? I don't think it is, to be honest with you. It's a mixed bag. I mean, I, I don't think it is. I don't think it's fatal that Biden and, and, and his delegates are there and other countries know that he's having problems domestically. We've always had this with the states. You know, there were similar things around Kyoto. The problem with the mansion thing is, is that, you know, he's, this is obviously all about his vested co-interests in Virginia. Is The problem is, unfortunately, he's putting out the real meat of, of Biden's programme, which is around the clean electricity, as you pointed out which is obviously crucial for bringing down emissions who knows how american politics is going to play out between now and the next election and then also who knows what the competition will be like you know maybe the the seats change in such a way that the 2030 target is still feasible under a new administration right it's not ideal but i don't think it's fatal point six obviously britain's hosting the event in Glasgow. And it's been reported largely at home in terms of, is it going to be a triumph for Boris Johnson or not? We are seeing climate denial sort of reinventing itself in the UK. We're starting to see groups like Net Zero Watch or Steve Baker's backbench Net Zero Scrutiny Group. The UK has promised to reduce emissions by 68% by 2030 compared to the 1990 figures and 78% by 2035, which is becoming contentious at home and becoming a talking point in right-wing newspapers. What exactly is the UK bringing to the table? Are we actually important or are we just serving the canapes and chilling the wine? Um, it's a good question. So, I mean, it is, is you know, the UK sort of has this dual role, right? So we, we are there negotiating for ourselves. We used to negotiate as part of the EU, obviously, on, on, on at these meetings primarily. We will still be doing that, but as host, as you, host makes it sound like we're just sort of putting on all the hotels and, as you say, the canapes. Yes. But, um, but there's actually a huge amount. I mean, this is, let, let's be clear, that this is like the biggest event the UK has had since the Olympics. It's not just about the logistics and the operational side of it. It's about the UK and the Foreign Office really like exploiting the diplomatic muscle that the UK has. And that's that a lot of people are pointing to that as being the reason that the French with Paris in 2015 had a success compared to the Danes in Copenhagen in 2009. It's a bit more complicated than that, but that's part of it. Alex Sharma, who's the COP26 president, he was the former business secretary in the UK, you know, he's sort of known as, some people affectionately know him as no drama Sharma. <laughs> he's well liked by other countries. He's, you know, he's not particularly exciting, but he's a, a technocrat. He's across the details. 
and he's acutely sensitive of the other issues for other countries. His role is, as he describes it himself, he almost said nuclear broker in a speech, but he's, he slightly, slightly misspoke for a second before correcting himself, said neutral broker. His job is to play <laughs> a role of, of new, neutral broker. I think nuclear, yes. bro- nuclear broker would add a whole new level, level of drama to it all, but he's generally considered to have done a good job so far. Whether he can you know, keep everyone happy during the two weeks it remains to be seen but that's the hosting side of it i mean you've also alluded to the fact that there's a whole load of you know uk domestic politics going on i mean i think clearly there's like noises off and people grumbling about cost of net transition to net zero and so on i'd say there i would acknowledge that and not deny that but i would say that generally speaking they are still on the relatively on the margins even if some of them have access to columns in national newspapers they're not where if you look at public attitudes polling, if you look at what the government's actually doing, and if you look at what's happening in the real world economy, they are not representative of where most people are at. So yes, there's some pushback. Yes, that would be expected, right? It'd be weird if lots of vested interests and lots of anti-science people suddenly disappeared. I suppose it's quite interesting to notice that like some of those people you mentioned, like Net Zero Watch, which is basically used to be the Global Warming Policy Foundation, it's a very small number of people, right? They can all fit in the same building, apparently. In Tufton Street, it's it's quite cramped in they there. They can all fit in the same building. And there's like a weird like Venn diagram overlap with Brexit and so on, which I'm not going to get into because yeah. we're a very apolitical <laughs> magazine. So, But yeah, it's not where most people are at. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Point seven, who's coming and who's not coming? Because there have been significant RSVPs, I can't make it. It looks like President Xi of China is probably not going to show up. We still don't know. Coal in particular is a huge sticking point for China and also India, Brazil and Russia who are opposing calls to eliminate coal completely. They're just completely against it. Mm. How serious is it if she doesn't show? I don't think it's hugely serious if she doesn't show. He's not. He didn't even go to his own you know, it was a major UN biodiversity summit, sort of the, the, you know, the nature equivalent of this in October in Kunming in China. He didn't even bother going to that in person. You know, it was in his own, his, in his own mm. country and that that's meant to be, I mean, it's arguably not quite on the scale of this, but it's still a massive event. Obviously, it would be good if he was there, clearly. that's. Uh, but he is, you know, the delegation they're sending is huge. He brought his veteran climate negotiator out of retirement for this summit a while ago. So it's clear, you know, and that was, that was the person who was um, in charge when Paris was thrashed out. I do, it's not like China's not taking it seriously and we know even though the, the, the slightly frustrating thing is they, they're leaving it to the last minute to put forward their formal plan. But we do know basically what's going to be in it, right? Because she stood up last September, September 2020, and told us, which is it's going to seem like completely in the weeds and a, a sort of splitting hairs. But the promise was to update their previous target from peaking emissions around 2030 to before 2030, which sounds like dancing on the head of a pin. But for the country that is... 27, 28% of global emissions, it makes a massive difference, right? The climate denial guy in the pub usually says, well, it's a complete waste of time. Any of us doing anything about this because China's building 20 coal plants an hour. Yeah. Can you give us a true picture of exactly what is really going on with Chinese carbon 
production? Well, Chinese emissions are still growing. Uh, you know, the country's economy is still growing. Coal is still completely the backbone of its economy. Uh, it's responsible. It's you know, it's more than. I think last I looked, it was about it's about sixty percent of their energy. More than two thirds of their energy comes from fossil fuels when you count gas as well. China is still built on coal and is going to be for a long time. So one of so part of them, she's uh, new plans around phase out of coal, but it's just going to take. There's a lot of a iner- lot of inertia in that system, and it's going to take it's going to take time. But that that is. China's big problem is coal. You know, they, that's how they've industrialised so fast. The problem is the age of the coal plants. So UK likes to bang on a lot about how quickly we phased out coal. And we did phase out coal really quickly over the last decade. It was quite incredible. You know, it went from being sort of quarter or more of electricity supplies to basically nothing now, you know, 10 years ago. The reason for that was because all our coal plants are really knackered and old. They were like, you know, typically about sort of 40 years old. And there were things that were basically coming to the end of their economic life anyway. In China, a lot of these plants are like 10 years old. The head of the International Energy Agency, Fatih Biro, I spoke to him a lot about this. And he says that is the fundamental problem is what you do about retiring. It's not about just stopping new coal. You've got to retire all that existing coal power. And a lot of it's really young. And there's, So, yeah. And, and as we've seen with the energy crisis this year, there's coal shortages in, in, in China. This politically can be really difficult, right? Another massive country with coal connections is India, which is arguing that the assessment of carbon production should be rebalanced on per capita emissions. Because if uh, emissions are measured on a per capita basis, India actually outperforms the US, Japan and Germany. Is it likely that we might see that kind of a rebalancing at COP26, that industrialised countries would bear more of the burden than industrialising countries? I mean, that's always been a kind of fundamental principle of the climate talks. The jargon is common but differentiated responsibilities, which is a horrible mouthful. Snappy. But it basically yes. says that it basically means you, the rich countries, have got a greater responsibility and a greater ability to do something about this than us, the poorer countries. That's why richer countries providing finance to poorer countries is a key part of this, not just to help them adapt to climate change, but so that the technology to do it, you know, whether it's solar power, whether it's electric vehicles, whether it's green hydrogen, whether it's something or other, they can do that as well. So that's why the framework for the Paris Agreement is this like bottom up approach. So it's like all mm. you know, countries set their own carbon emission targets. It's not like an in an ideal world you'd have in some sort of like utopian thing we've got some world government, which maybe is some people's idea of a nightmare. <laughs> you, 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 you would go, well we need to get to one point five degrees. Um I'm gonna do a spreadsheet. Here's how much you have to cut the UK, here's how much you have to cut India, so on and so forth. Right. But that's we don't have a world government, so that's not how it works. In my science fiction dreams, we do. <laughs> Point eight. The BBC just wrote a story about how carbon-dependent countries, including Saudi Arabia, Japan, Australia, have been lobbying to try and water down calls to move away from fossil fuels. To what extent is the conference susceptible to lobbying, or is it individual governments that are more susceptible? That was a great story. I'd have very happily had the leak of that. The story you're talking about is unearthed, which is an arm of Greenpeace, got hold of these uh, review comments of one of the reports by the intergovernmental panel on climate change this is the un climate science body and they've got a report coming out next year by something called working group three which is basically in plain english is the sort of report about what are the solutions to climate change you know what do you actually do about it and what those comments showed which is basically massive naked self-interest by countries as you mentioned so australia on coal brazil on beef and so on and so forth so what was interesting about that is the ipcc process everyone thinks of it as just being about the scientists that do the research for it but 
actually what's important about the IPCC reports is they're owned by governments. Governments approve them, right? So that this, the scientists go away and do the research and then countries make their comments. But as a whole bunch of scientists came out very quickly after that report came out, they were like, well, yes, we get this all the time with the reports. You know, countries do do this. This is countries <laughs> acting this national self-interest, even if it's basically anti-science, right? But the job of the scientists is then to weed out those comments. So yes, countries are always going to do that. And yes, that feeds through to COP26 and the way countries act to climate talks as well. So, you know, Brazil, the way Brazil's always, always treated issues around deforestation and the Saudis are famously a sort of cartoonish villain usually at the talks because surprise, surprise, in a world that massively cuts its emissions, there's less demand for their products, right? And a impact on their national budgets. The obvious sort of outlier on high income countries at the moment is Australia, which has basically become a sort of complete renegade on climate action it's nowhere and that's because its economy is heavily reliant on fossil fuels i mean it's kind of mad in some ways because it's a country that's like facing some of the worst climate impacts and also arguably has some of the best resources for doing something about it obviously has lots of land and lots of solar potential but yeah you know australia is a real outlier at the moment on on the other side of the argument gina reinhardt (laughs) yes yes that's true yes a lot of money there Point nine, what's missing? What's not going into the conversation that ought to be going in, do you think? That's a really good question, actually. So I suppose the slightly strange thing about these, about the climate talks is they, it's always talks about temperature goals. It's never really about the, the obvious problem, which is fossil fuels, right? That's the big mm. one. There are other things, obviously, around land use and deforestation, but fossil fuels is the big one. And I guess what's interesting about the COP is actually, although that's not on the formal agenda in any way, you know, fossil fuel phase outs, UK government has made a big play of that being part of it. You know, the UK government's sort of Boris Johnson-y soundbite is that it's about cash, cars, trees and coal, right? And that's, so that's the, the mm. reference there to coal is about, you know, building on the sidelines of the summit, these alliances of countries doing phase-outs of, uh, of coal. So there's something called the Powering Pass Coal Alliance. And that's a group of countries led by the UK that are committing to get rid of getting rid of coal. Costa Rica and Denmark are trying to set up a sort of similar thing on oil and gas. That might not be on the official agenda, but it's really encouraging that that's come much higher profile up on the side um, because that is ultimately what this is about, right? We need to get off fossil fuels. Yes, they built our modern economy and all the rest of it, but it's not tenable to stay on them. So that's a really good thing to see. Finally, number 10, possibly the most important thing that the listeners would need to know about COP26. What will constitute success? What will constitute success? At the start, India and China have to have come up with a new climate plan. On the money, the $100 billion a year must have been delivered. And by the end of the summit, they need to have sorted out most of the so-called rule book. Mm -hmm. And perhaps most crucially of all, which sounds quite dull and and unexciting, is some sort of real explicit, strong commitment to coming back sooner to sort the problem out because waiting until 2025 isn't going to cut it. What sort of form of language that takes, I don't know, but there needs to be a commitment to putting the world back on the path to... 1.5 degrees this summit is not going to do that on its own right but it could open the door to it happening still somehow in the coming years adam vaughan thanks for joining us in this bunker special it's been fascinating and i do encourage all listeners to go to adam's piece on the on the new scientist website it's it's really fascinating adam thanks for joining us it's a pleasure thank you
Listeners, don't forget to follow The Bunker for a week of specials around COP26. And if you've enjoyed this particular edition, why not forward it to three like-minded friends? Use the little share button there on your app. It's dead easy. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>